recent failures that occurred in March of 2023 of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Signature Bank prompted us to think about the role of deposit insurance coverage. More than 99% of accounts in the United States are below the deposit insurance limits. Deposit insurance does not exist in a vacuum, and the success or lack of success of any deposit insurance program is going to depend on how it interacts with all the other parts uh, of the banking and regulatory system. Welcome to this podcast of IADI, the International Association of Deposit Insurers. My name is Bert van Rosebegger from the IADI Secretariat in Basel, and I'm happy to welcome today two guests from the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in the United States. A warm welcome to Rosalind Bennett and John Pogac. Rosalind is the Executive Program Director at the FDIC's Center for Financial Research, where John is a Senior Economic Researcher. We will talk today with Rosalind and John on the FDIC's role, and we will discuss a recently published report by the FDIC titled Options for Deposit Insurance Reform. This paper, which uh, everybody now calls the Options Paper, was published in the wake of the banking crisis earlier this year, especially the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. So, Rosalind and John, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So, Rosalind, maybe we can uh, start off with you. So, um, f following the recent bank failures, uh, the FDIC has, uh, has published this report, Options for Deposits Insurance Reform, uh, which has been uh, publicly available on the FDIC website since the 1st of May. So, I would say the report is very open and transparent about ways um, in which uh, deposit insurance could potentially be designed differently within the United States, of course. Um, maybe you can explain us a bit what, what was the motivation for, for you producing that paper and, and what exactly could be the follow-up of it? Well, as you mentioned, the recent failures that occurred in March of 2023 of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Signature Bank um, prompted us to take a look. And I should also mention the, the decision to uh, use a systemic risk exception and cover the uninsured depositors prompted us to think about the role of deposit insurance coverage. Um, the chairman came to us and asked us to, to evaluate deposit insurance coverage, put it in a historical context, and talk about what possible options there are for perhaps reforming the system. Um, in the U.S., reforming or changing deposit insurance coverage would require an act of Congress, so it's not something that's under the authority of the FDIC. But we wanted to put out some ideas for debate and uh, options that could be considered and wanted to be part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so John, maybe for you today, so we will focus on, on one part of the paper only, right? The, paper, the part that offers insights on the uh, advantages and, and, and challenges maybe that are associated with three options for, for coverage by deposit insurance. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about the options that were actually considered in the paper? I mean, there were, there were three line, um, three options were considered. Um, so higher but limited coverage and unlimited or, or, or full coverage and also targeted coverage um, where, where some deposits would, would receive some, some higher protection. Maybe you can just tell us a bit more about, about those three options. 
So the first option is limited coverage. Uh, limited coverage really maintains the status quo system within the United States in which there's a deposit insurance limit that applies uh, to all types of accounts across banks. Uh, currently in the United States, that limit is $250,000. Alternatively, we could think about raising it a little bit or, or maybe even by a significant margin, but it would still maintain that same structure under the limited coverage option. A second option that we consider in the report is unlimited or full coverage, and unlimited coverage would guarantee all deposits at, at all banks in the United States. And the third option that we consider, which we call targeted coverage, would increase coverage or potentially even provide unlimited coverage to certain types of accounts. And the type of account that we focus on in the report for targeted coverage is something that we call business payment accounts. And business payment, business payment accounts as we talk about them in the context of the report, are really thinking about those accounts that are used for business transactions, uh, for example, to make payroll, to pay vendors, uh, et cetera. And the idea behind that is that these are accounts that are really designed to uh, just continue the flow of payments within the financial system. So, so maybe we can start off with the with the option that would probably be the, the biggest change um, as to today, so the one where there is full or, or unlimited coverage for all deposits. So under, under such a, a blanket coverage, as we would say, there would be no incentives, of course, for anybody to run the bank because you would be fully covered. Um, but also this type of coverage would, would be different than what is well, currently considered to be to be good practice, right? Also, as stated in the other core principles. So I would say in, in, in the past, I mean, there were often speaking about this kind of coverage arguments were often made. Um, that that would prevent uh, market discipline and, and, and banks would in the end take up. Uh, would in the end uh, be taking too much risk, right? Um, so what, what, what in your view are the market discipline implications of, of this option of, of full coverage? That's right, Bert. I, I, in the report, we do talk a lot about what the implications would be for market di discipline and mm. moral hazard. Um, certainly, unlimited coverage then removes the, uh, the incentive to run and therefore provides the best financial stability benefits, but those are the costs. Um, what we talk about is how if we were to implement such a system, it needs to be complemented with other tools such as supervisory tools um, that would allow, would encourage additional um, market discipline and also provide some mitigants for moral hazard. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then looking at your option, maybe John, you again, um, the other option in the paper was, um, well, the one that is closest to the current framework, right? So um, limited coverage with, with a, a coverage level that could be higher than the current one of 250,000, but still, but still limited, right? And that would then equally apply to, to all deposits. Um, what, what would you say are, are the main points there to be, to be considered in that, in that scenario? So in the context of limited coverage, you would still have, fairly comparable moral hazard implications as you have in the, the current system. Uh, you wouldn't have the concerns that Raza expressed relating to unlimited coverage, at least not to the same extent. However, in this in the report, we talk about the fact that more than 99% of accounts in the United States are below the deposit insurance limit. So extending coverage uh, when you already have many, many of these accounts in, uh, below the deposit insurance limit would be covering a few accounts on the margin potentially, but you'd really have to increase it a tremendous amount to cover these very, very large accounts that, especially in the case of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, uh, may have been part of the the impetus for for the run and the, the financial stability implications. So increasing 
deposit insurance coverage by a sizable amount, if you're not going to cover those very, very large accounts that can create financial instability, would not necessarily do much on that dimension. In which case, if you were to maintain the, if one were to maintain the uh, limited coverage framework, it, it might be beneficial to think about some of the other tools that could limit the large exposure of these very large accounts and the implications for financial stability. Okay. Well, maybe we'll come to that later, but maybe we can first uh, talk about the third option, right? That's probably the option that is currently discussed uh, most intensively in, in the global deposit insurance community and uh, what you call in the paper targeted coverage. So that would mean that, that certain deposits, um, the paper seems to point mainly at business accounts that are used for for payment purposes such as payroll accounts um, well that those those um, um, those accounts would receive a higher coverage than the standard retail deposits would even be full coverage right uh, and the paper seems to argue that this is unlikely to lead to less market discipline because depositors that would profit from this higher coverage are not often in a position to analyze the bank's business and, and hence to discipline um, the bank um, I thought it was very interesting to see that rather the paper focuses um, more on some of the, of the more practical challenges um, of this um, of this um, targeted coverage. Um, so, so Rosalind, could you maybe walk us a bit through this this um, practical challenges? Absolutely. I think um, what we were trying to with the tra- targeted coverage, our concern is financial stability, and one of the things that providing additional coverage to business payment accounts would provide us is some additional financial stability um, benefits. For example, these are the types of accounts that businesses would be paying payroll out of and paying their vendors. So when those accounts are disrupted, those types of payments are disruptive and the additional effects uh, on the economy are much higher for those types of accounts, which is why we were focusing on those accounts. And as you mentioned, because they're payment accounts rather than what we would say investment accounts or people who are looking for yield, the, the it's the payment aspects of the accounts that are valuable and therefore that it's, it's uh, not as likely to be subject to market discipline for those accounts. Now, practically speaking, um, one of the things, the things have changed in the United States since the f- global financial crisis that makes it a little bit difficult to identify these t- types of accounts. For example, we um, now allow pay, uh, interest payments on all types of transaction accounts. So um, that uh, many transaction accounts do have some sort of yield associated with them, whereas mm-hmm. before the the global financial crisis, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so some the, so it's difficult to identify the accounts in a very clear way, and that we are working on trying to develop ways that might make sense for us to to identify the accounts, and additional reporting would be required. Mm-hmm. Maybe a follow-up question on, on, on that model of coverage, so to say, the financial stability aspect of it, right? So, so I mean, obviously, depositors or, or the ones protected, the, the corporate or, or business deposit holders would, would have less or, or no reasons at all to, to flee the bank. Um, so that seems to be an advantage from a financial stability point of view, but, but are there also disadvantages? So could you give some insights in your, in your thinking there? Yeah, so when we're thinking about deposit runs, and generally these are destabilizing, but at the end of the day, they also are a form of market discipline. And banks, as part of their liquidity management practices, do consider this as, and contingency planning, they do consider the the 
the risk associated with some of these deposits and the fact that depositors that are covered by higher coverage would not run would reduce the incentive of banks to think about that risk and then think about risk mitigation strategies associated with it. At the same time, this is not a particularly desirable form of market discipline. If there are other ways to get at market discipline that prevents runs and, and prevents businesses from, from not being able to meet payroll, I think those other tools might, might be more effective in promoting market discipline without uh, the associated financial stability risks. Okay. Okay. And may maybe one other question on, on that model. Um, um, so this model is, would not be, if it were to be implemented, it would not be totally new to the U.S., right? So maybe what many of our listeners are not aware of um, following the financial crisis, uh, there was a transaction account guarantee program in the United States that gave additional protection to, to transaction accounts. So could you maybe give some, some details on that? And, and maybe there were some lessons to be learned from, from that experience for, for, for what we uh, are thinking of and discussing today. Absolutely. There were two separate transaction account guarantee programs. The FDIC transaction account guarantee program ran from 2008 until 2010. When Dodd-Frank passed, an additional program ran from 2011 to 2012. The TAG program covered non-interest-bearing transaction accounts, and it provided unlimited coverage. The initial FDIC program was voluntary, so everyone was covered, and at particular periods, banks were able to opt out of the program. Furthermore, initially, we did price that additional coverage. We had a flat price and eventually developed a risk-based way of pricing the coverage. I think those are some of the lessons that we learned, that the risk-based pricing was a better approach to charging for the coverage. Furthermore, when Dodd-Frank put the program in place in 2010, it was made mandatory, so all the banks were required to participate in the program. So there are a number of things that we learned from that. As I mentioned, the deposit insurance pricing being risk-based was important, and also the idea of having it mandatory for all the institutions rather than on an opt-out basis was also important to the success of the program. Was the identification of those accounts something that caused problems? Um, at that time, there were non-interest-bearing accounts. It was fairly easy. We did do a few small adjustments for different types of, there were minor adjustments for different types of accounts, but generally there was a category of non-interest-bearing accounts that no longer exists um, mm -hmm. since now um, banks are able to provide um, interest on all accounts. So it makes it harder to identify the accounts that are what we would call payment type accounts. Okay, thank you. Um, coming back to maybe what we just touched upon very shortly um, some minutes ago. So the paper also highlights that um, any deposit insurance system exists alongside other policy tools, right, that can affect um, the efficacy of, of, of coverage. Um, maybe we can discuss some of these other, other tools that would be available. John, maybe you? Yeah, so uh, it's very important in this debate exactly that deposit insurance does not exist in a vacuum and the success or lack of success of any deposit insurance program is going to depend on how it interacts with all the other parts uh, of the banking and regulatory system. So some of the main tools that, that might complement deposit insurance are supervision and regulation. So some examples of that could include uh, long-term debt requirements, which would encourage the more stabilizing forms of market discipline by having long-term unsecured debt holders bear some of that risk rather than depositors who might be more inclined to, to run on a bank. 
Uh, and and such a requirement would also improve the options that policymakers have in the context of resolution. Uh, capital requirements as well are a, a tool that can be used to reduce moral hazard to the extent that levels of deposit insurance might have different levels of moral hazard implication. Capital requirements are a tool that can be used to counteract some of the moral hazard effects. Also, liquidity requirements can be used to reduce uh, reliance on more unstable forms of funding. So to the extent that deposit insurance leaves large unstable forms of funds in the system, uh, certain kinds of liquidity requirements can reduce banks' reliance on those. Uh, we also discussed risk-based pricing uh, in, in the previous question in the context of TAG. That's also a tool that can be used. So risk-based pricing, depending on the risk that we're concerned about, it might be, or that policymakers are concerned about, it might be uh, moral hazard concerns, in which case there might be asset-side risk that that that, uh, that policymakers might be concerned with, or they might be concerned with liquidity types of risks, uh, with over-reliance on certain forms of deposits, again, which risks we are concerned about might differ depending on the deposit insurance scheme that is implemented. But in any of those cases, risk-based pricing can help adjust uh, or can help account for uh, the risks in the system and and pass those through to banks. Although it's important to note that risk-based deposit insurance pricing can only go so far. It's very difficult to see in all the different risks that each of the banks takes. And the idea that all risks can be perfectly priced, I think, is something that that no one uh, adheres to. But it it is a tool that can be used in conjunction with others. Okay, thank you, John. So maybe one other question that you can, um, um, you know, give us some insights on is is um, a proposal that's been discussed um, quite intensely now in, in academic circles, but but not only in academic circles. And that's the collateralization of deposits, right? So. Um, I mean, of course, depending on the design of that collateralization, this could have significant impact on on banks' ability to um, to conduct credit intermediation. Um, and your paper also touches upon that in, in a limited um, extent, of course, um, and and it does so um, by by talking about bank individual collateralization, um, and I think for large uninsured deposits only. Uh, and, and also, interestingly, all, that's probably also something that many of our listeners are not aware of. Um, a similar arrangement for collateralization is already in place in the U.S. for, for bank deposits of, of certain public authorities. So maybe you can help us out a bit here and, and uh, share your thoughts. Yeah, so we, we do discuss this a bit in, in the report, and there is some existing literature from the FDIC that predates the report on this issue as well. And depending on applicable state or federal law in the United States, public unit deposits may be secured or collateral by assets of the bank. And indeed, in some states, it is required uh, that uh, the public entities in that state have their uh, deposits collateralized. And the idea behind this is to protect the the public funds that are associated with these deposits. Uh, As you mentioned, one of the cost or benefits of this, as depending on where one might sit, is that it does take some balance sheet capacity and reduces uh, the ability of banks to intermediate credit. Uh, of course, that poses costs, which might be seen as a, a detraction from using this, but at, at the same time, it passes costs of liquidity provision uh, to banks or to depositors. And in the case of the very large deposits that we talk about in the paper, this might be uh, considered a benefit rather than a deterrent to thinking about uh, the collateralization of deposits because this liquidity of, of provision for these very large accounts does have broader uh, cost to the system. Uh, another potential advantage of this is it allows the depositor to monitor collateral. It, it 
I think it's generally seen as easier to monitor a specific kind of security against which the deposit is collateralized rather than thinking about having uh, the depositor having to monitor the entire portfolio of the bank. So that might be seen as an advantage as well. Uh, and at the end of the day, it also provides security to depositors without providing as much pressure on the deposit insurance system. So these large uninsured depositors could get some security to their deposit, and that wouldn't necessarily need to pass through to higher deposit insurance assessments, which would have to be passed to banks, and, and there would be costs associated with that as well. Uh, of course, it should be noted that you know, collateralization of of deposits or or of short-term funding does not necessarily mean it's not subject to run. So so there is still the potential for a if collateral values decline or if the the quality of or the the counterparty risk of the bank from the depositor's perspective uh, has deteriorated, um, the ability to withdraw quickly could also you know have the same kind of financial yep. stability implication. So it's it's not a panacea, nor is anything, but it is important to think of as a potential tool that could be used. Many, many thanks, John. Very interesting. So uh, I think this leaves us with a lot of, of input right, to think about um, as, as the discussion on potential reforms in deposit insurance, uh, both in the United States, but also in many, many other jurisdictions uh, continues and also in the audio, of course. So Rosalind and John, uh, let me thank you for, for bringing your insights to the table today. And uh, many thanks for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us.